Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. I'm going to start today's episode with a question. How many presidents has the Republic of China had? Well, I suspect you're trying to trip me and the listeners up here because there are problems that come with that question. Okay, okay. So I'm talking Republic of China presidents, ROC presidents, presidents that have ruled over Taiwan. Still, uh, the answer will depend on what our starting date is because between Japan handing Taiwan over to the nationalists in 1945 and uh, the nationalists moving the government to Taipei late 1949, President Chiang Kai-shek resigned for a year or so. Okay, right. Uh, He resigned, but he was still running things. There was this acting president, uh, Li Zongren. I'll reword my question then. From Chiang Kai-shek resuming power in 1949, how many ROC presidents have there been? Well, the standard answer would be Chiang Kai-shek, his son Jiang Jingguo, Li Danghui. Those three take us up to the year 2000. And then Chen Shui-bian, Ma Ying-zhou, and as of this recording, Tsai Ing-wen. So that's six. But you're obviously going to bring up Yin Jiagan. Bingo. Yes, Yin Jiagan. And in the style of the day, he was also known as CKEN. You know, that was popular mm-hmm. back then. CKS, CCK, CKEN, and Chinese Yin Jiagan. So, as you know, after Chiang Kai shek died in 1975, Yen served out the remainder of the um, Mr. President for Life's term. And back in the days of what you often call the historical KMT, and as late as 1991, the president was selected by the National Assembly of the Republic of China. It was for a term of six years, not four. Right. So C.K. Yen, or Yen Jiagan, was sworn in as ROC vice president in 1966. He was in his second term as vice president when Chiang Kai-shek died. That second term for VP started in 1972, and it was the start of the fifth term for Chiang Kai-shek, who was about 85 years old at this point. Yen Jiagan served the remaining three years of that term until he resigned in 1978 to allow the son of the former president-slash-dictator um, to become the next president-slash-dictator, but, but to be fair, um, a better president-slash-whatever uh, um, you want to put in there. They were both talented at removing rivals and retaining power, but father and son Zhang were not, let's say, among the ranks of the most educated and cosmopolitan. So they relied on educated men like Yan Jiagan to keep the wheels of commerce moving and to represent Taiwan overseas. Mm-hmm. And part of that education included English, in which he was proficient. So when Yen was vice president, he was the guy Chiang Kai-shek would send abroad whenever such a visit was required. In fact, Chiang Kai-shek never traveled abroad. 
He had traveled before. He'd studied in Japan as a young man and as leader, gone to Moscow in 1927. Then there were two World War II trips, India in 42, Egypt in 43 for the Cairo Conference, meeting with Churchill and Roosevelt. He visited the Philippines and South Korea in 49. But after retreating from China in late 1949, Chiang Kai-shek made a vow that he would not leave Taiwan except to retake the motherland of China. And that was one promise he actually kept. Yeah, uh, well, not the retaking the mainland part, but yes, he never left Taiwan during the last quarter century of his life. I wonder how much of that was like a fear of being assassinated, or maybe he was thinking China would invade if he left? Probably the major factor was he was just too old. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. So the VPs did the traveling, and I'm reading here that in 1967, Yan Jiagan visited the U.S. and met President Lyndon B. Johnson. Then in January of 1973, he again visited the U.S. and met with Nixon. Actually, he met with Nixon on two separate trips. He also traveled through the Caribbean and attended the inauguration of the president of Nicaragua. Yep. But Yen's greatest claim to overseas visits of fame, however, would be in July 1977 when he was president and when, Eric, uh, you were how old? <laughs> I was a seven-month-old baby in July of 1977. And yes, before you say anything, I know, I'm age-deprived. Thanks uh, for reminding me. Don't worry, you'll catch up. If I'm anyway, lucky. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, in 1977, uh, Yen Jiagan, or CK Yen, became the first sitting Republic of China president to visit another country after the ROC government moved or retreated to Taiwan. So he visits Saudi Arabia, which actually recognized Taiwan as the Republic of China all the way up until 1990 when they uh, switched to the PRC. 1990, that's um, kind of late. It's probably a fair guess that U.S. pressure played some role in the Saudis' decision. But eventually, of course, the global wave of defections to Red China was uh, hard to ignore. But beyond politics, before 1990, Saudi Arabia was the largest oil supplier to Taiwan. That would be oil sent to the then fully state-run Chinese Petroleum Company, or CPC, which imported about 40% of Taiwan's oil each year from Saudi Arabia. Turning the clock back to the beginning of the man's story, Yin was born in 1905 in China's Jiangsu province. Uh, so he was just six years old or so when the Republic of China was founded. He was from a wealthy, prestigious family, and he graduated from St. John's University in Shanghai in 1926 with a degree in chemistry. The school, the St. John's University, was uh, founded by American Christians was one of the best in the country, and it taught its subjects in English and was actually accredited with the, the U.S. system. Yen looks set to have a promising political and or business career, and in 1931, he became a manager at the Shanghai Railway Administration, then in 1938, became director of the finance department for the Fujian Provincial Government. So from some Chinese-language articles that I uh, struggled through, I read that while in this position, so in, in Fujian, director of finance, that he came up with an innovative tax payment plan for taxing farmers. It was a system called Tianfu Collection. 
And in short, it meant that if you didn't have the money to pay taxes as a farmer, you could pay with crops. And this led to less hoarding, less inflation. And from what I read, these tax policies were apparently used elsewhere in China and reduced the suffering of starvation during World War II. Okay. I've got to push back against some of this. Fujian was harshly run, badly run, no model for efficient or benign government. Because of the proximity uh, to Taiwan and the flow of people back and forth across the strait, it was well known in Taiwan that Chen Yi's rule over the province, the nationalists' rule over the province, was corrupt and brutal. There was a sense of dread among many uh, when the, the Taiwanese learned that uh, this governor, Chen Yi, and his cronies were coming here to run Taiwan. Yeah, Chen Yi came to Taiwan to assume power in October of 1945, and Yen came with him. So we're talking just two months after the Japanese surrender. Yen was sent here to become the Taiwan Provincial Transportation Director, but quickly was named Finance Director instead. So, you know how we call the money we use in Taiwan the New Taiwan Dollar? Mm-hmm. Well, Yen is often called the father of the New Taiwan Dollar. It was a currency introduced in 1949 during Yen's time in charge of the Bank of Taiwan. Yeah, the New Taiwan Dollar is a, another story that deserves an entire episode. Can you imagine having to oversee a switch of currencies and do it smoothly? Oh, no easy task, my friend especially against a backdrop of hyperinflation. It's more than uh, the difference between um, just printing some new bills with uh, uh, pictures of CKS on them. You know, we're talking about replacing the old Taiwan dollar uh, with the new Taiwan dollar at a rate of, what was it, something like 40,000 old Taiwan dollars to one new Taiwan dollar. 40,000 to one. Oh. Yeah, 40,000 to one. Amazing. So if we had kept using the old Taiwan dollar, Perhaps today we'd be using numbers even higher than they do in Korea, where like a hamburger costs, I don't know, 9,000 Korean won. Or Indonesia, right? Uh, They're uh, rupees. Yeah. So even laying aside the possibility of a very long string of zeros on our money, changing the currency of a country is, as you noted a second ago, (laughs) complicated. And don't forget that from 1895, when Taiwan officially became a Japanese colony, they used what was called the Taiwanese yen. But then in 1946, the old Taiwan dollar was introduced after Taiwan was handed over to the nationalists following the defeat of Japan and the end of World War II. Yeah, so you've gone from the Taiwanese yen in 1945 to the old Taiwan dollar in 46, And then roughly three years later, you've got the new Taiwan dollar introduced uh, in June of 49, a move that helped keep inflation in check. Our forgotten president, Mr. Yen, was very much responsible for overseeing this and, by most accounts, did a great job. Yeah, we should definitely do another episode on the story of the new Taiwan dollar. But no, back to our forgotten president. This poor dude just keeps getting forgotten, so let's stay on track here. President Yen's personal life was marked by an early tragedy. His first wife, whom he married in Shuzhou in 1922, died sadly during childbirth the following year. But in Shanghai in 1924, he married again to a woman named Liu Qishun, and they reportedly had five sons and four daughters. So a very um, active and uh, loving personal life. All of their children had 
reasonably distinguished careers, and the remainder of the Yan family that did not flee from China to Taiwan after the communists won the civil war, they、uh, also made out quite well. And their family home back in Suzhou is now a tourist site, or, or more accurately, a national historic site. So, forgotten President Yan had his hand in so many areas. He was a big player in the Chinese cultural renaissance that took place in Taiwan. It happened at the same time that the opposite was happening in China. You know, the ironically labeled Cultural Revolution, which in fact was a very uncultured revolution that destroyed huge amounts of Chinese culture and resulted in just loss and destruction. Untold numbers of ancient art, treasures, pottery, valuables, books—I mean, you name it—they destroyed it. Thankfully, a very good portion of China's treasures had been taken to Taiwan, and you can see many of them at the National Palace Museum. Which, incidentally,、uh, Yen was chairman of the the board off until just a few years before his death, and he founded the、uh, Rotary International branch in Taiwan. And something different during the presidency of Yen, Taiwan began working on the Chang'an project, a secretive mission to design, manufacture, and test missiles for defensive purposes.、Uh, but of course, a missile is a missile. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how you feel, John, but it's it's kind of weird to me that we don't have his face, so Yen's face, on even like a, a one NT coin in Taiwan. I don't think I've ever seen a statue of him. His face is not familiar to the majority of expats or Taiwanese that I know. But he played important roles at rather important times, such as right after the 228 incident, when a bunch of the leaders of Taiwan, including the notorious provincial governor we were talking about earlier, Chen Yi, brutally suppressed opposition to nationalist rule. And Chen Yi will get an episode of his own because he richly deserves it, but not for anything good. But anyway, shortly after the killings began, Taiwanese groups condemned most of the officials in charge of finances and food of being corrupt and incompetent. But again, reportedly, Yen was a force for good at that time.、Mm, pretty good resume for a guy who graduated with a degree in chemistry. Yeah, how he picked it up, I don't know. But his understanding of economics helped to get the food and financial situation in Taiwan under reasonable control during those chaotic years. Before the final downfall of the KMT in China, so we're talking about between the end of World War II and the exodus to Taiwan in 1949. A traumatic few years, and some of it must have been learning from mistakes. A lot of them made on the the mainland. But yeah, eventually he got the inflation under control. He helped drag the situation from terrible to merely bad, and. He continued his career in economics in the 1950s in Taiwan, becoming first、uh, the Minister of Economics、uh, and then Minister of Finance. As you can tell, I don't want to go overboard in my praise. The economic miracle he helped oversee was、uh, fixing things. He, or at least his colleagues, had a hand in breaking.、Um, but yeah, still he he did a great job. And the Minister of Finance was a pretty lousy position in a lot of ways because there were impossible financial demands from the military. It's pretty hard to say no to the generals who can claim expenses. You know, it's a matter of survival or it's a secret national security. All through the early 1950s, he's working around that heavy military budget constraint, and he's unifying tax collection methods, figuring out a budget system for Taiwan. Assisting the executive committee on land policies to allow cultivators to actually own land, 
which it's arguable helped head off any potential genuine grassroots or organic communist rebellion in Taiwan. Yes, and land reform is another topic we've got to get around to someday. To make a long story short, after jumping back and forth between finance minister and other economic posts, In 1963, he became the president of the executive UN, a position usually called premier. And in that capacity, uh, the following year, visited Korea. He was also down here in my city of Kaohsiung in 1965 when they opened the refinery. And that would have been when the mayor of the city was Frank Chen, the same Frank Chen whose foundation is today the sponsor of Formosa Files. He became vice president in 1966. And here's an interesting aside. Yin was the first highly literate vice president of the Republic of China. The previous VPs had been military men. Yeah, interesting. The The times were changing. Yes, indeed. And this uh, literate, intelligent man and his wife quickly became the face of uh, the nationalist administration internationally. As we mentioned previously, the supreme leader had vowed not to leave Taiwan. And he kept that promise and sent the VP all over the place, including to the United States. Yeah, but his list of international travel is actually longer than just the U.S. In 1968, he goes to Thailand. In 1970, he represents the Republic of China at the U.N. In 1971, he goes to Saigon in uh, Vietnam. Another of the achievements of this forgotten president was the acceleration of what is called the 10 major construction projects, things like highways and airports and other critical infrastructure. Again, he didn't get to take credit for any of this. And it's not like we have a highway named after him in Taiwan, but he played his part in the construction of modern Taiwan. Mm. So as we noted, he became the first sitting ROC president to visit another country after the ROC had relocated to Taiwan. He went to Saudi Arabia in 1977, but almost exactly a year later, he resigned the presidency, which was then given to Jiang Jingguo, the power behind the presidential throne and the person who everyone knew was destined to become the next real leader of Taiwan or the Republic of China. CCK, Jiang Jingguo, was not technically president for those few years, but he wasn't just sitting around twiddling his thumbs. He uh, had plenty of power, and it's debatable how much, if any, genuine executive power Yen had during his short presidency. But from much of the histories compiled, it seems that, if nothing else, he was an able and competent supervisor of projects, whether or not he ultimately called the final shots. It seems Taiwan was lucky to get a conscientious man such as Yen. But also, yes, he was only in office for three years, and it's fair to say his presidency was transitional. Jiang Jingguo was chairman of the Kuomintang, or the Nationalists, and that was the title that really mattered at that time. And it should be noted as well that some of the other posts that he held can only be looked at as honorary. So, for example, his role as chairman of the National Palace Museum, he certainly had had some affiliation with that museum. But in September of 1986, Yen suffered a brain hemorrhage, and reports vary, but it seems he was frequently, if not mostly, bedridden from 1986 until his death in 1993 at the age of 88. 
Right. So a little difficult to judge or determine exactly what power he held after stepping down as president in 1978, but probably not as much as his uh, bio might suggest. At his funeral, he was given a 21-gun salute, and pretty much all the bigwigs of the party came to the ceremony on January 22, 1994. These were the final years before the first free and fair presidential election in Taiwan, so the last years that Taiwan was still a 100% nationalist stronghold. Yen was buried in the National Army Cemetery in Shizu, what's now New Taipei City, and he became the first former ROC president to be buried there. So, Eric, uh, any closing thoughts? Not many, um, except I think we both agree that this forgotten president deserves to be remembered a bit more. He may not have wielded true executive power during his time as president, but the other accomplishments he achieved throughout his life, especially with regard to the new Taiwan dollar and various financial and economic reforms, they were cornerstones of the, the foundation of the Taiwan we live in today. Yeah, things could have been much different, much worse, if a person not as capable as Ian had not supervised those changes. And it's not a bad thing for leaders to be forgotten, especially if it stems from an unintrusive government, or as in this case, a, a lack of cult of personality. Hmm. But in any case, we've done our small part here in trying to make Yen Jagan better known. Yes, but it's people like us who are part of the problem in the first place. Us? What have we done? Storytellers like us, whether journalists, writers, or podcasters, lack the expertise to explain and compellingly tell tales uh, involving economics, things like land reform, uh, inflation stabilization. Uh, it would take months of hard reading for us to get up to scratch on those topics. Oh, okay, I see what you mean. They are very difficult stories to tell. But anyway, back to the man at hand. I salute you, President Yen, and raise my glass. John, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. It's just bubble tea. Seriously? Tea with bubbles and foam. <laughs> Somehow I don't believe you. Thanks for tuning in to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Bye. <laughs>